not going to say a lot to introduce this incredibly special guest today because Dana Winters at Educators Neighborhood says it all and says it gorgeously. She's one of the directors of an organization that has taken the ideology of Fred Rogers. Yes, the Fred Rogers, who was for many of us one of our best friends growing up and liked us just the way we are and turned it into a stunning tool to help not children directly, but the grown-ups who protect, influence, and create learning environments for children, educators. These could be teachers, principals, parents, the school cooks, anyone who affects our students. The focus of the organization is on the mental health of these stakeholders, and Dana and her team are the incredibly fortunate guardians of Fred Rogers' archives. So the program is based not only on his shows, but on his writing, his speeches, and so much more. Let me put it this way. If you grew up watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, you actually have a huge foot up in the area of mental health, as Dana Winters is going to explain to us. And community is the key. Empowerment, transparency, feeling seen and heard is the key so that we can see and hear our students with more clarity and more honesty. Let's dive right in and listen to Dana's succinct explanations of what is actually an expansively healing initiative that's empowering thousands of educators to reframe their challenges and become stronger advocates for themselves and by extension for their students. Dana, thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to have this chat with you. Hello. Dana, you are the executive director of Educators Neighborhood. And when I discovered the organization, I was absolutely fascinated by the fact that it's founded on the ideology of Fred Rogers' work. And you've somehow brilliantly transformed the message he infused into his children's shows into communities that support the mental health of adult educators. So before you explain it fully, I don't know if you know I love scaffolding, and this is a type of scaffolding. I wanted to give the listeners context of who's best served by your initiative. So I wonder if I can just read off some symptoms that educators often have so you can tell me which of them this ideology would best serve. Is that all right? Sure. Okay, really quickly, many teachers find that the stresses of their job cause them to forget things and are suddenly more disorganized than usual. Another educator might find as the school year goes on that she loses her temper more easily and more often than she used to. A teacher may find that he has very low energy and the doctors aren't able to find anything physical. And a friend of his has headaches a lot of times and is all of a sudden very antisocial when she used to relish being with people. So which of these teachers would most likely call you for help? Honestly, every single one of them would probably contact us. And what we'd say is, oh my goodness. Well, the the first thing we'd want to do is listen. Um, You know, that's a a very much a, a core part of the work that we do is we listen first to better understand the needs of each one of those educators and then allow them to come into community to share those needs and opportunities and successes with one another. I absolutely love Mr. Rogers' message. And when I was in an argument with my sister when I was younger, I used to say, Mr. Rogers likes me just the way I am, so I'm not bothered by what you say. It's a gorgeous message for children and, frankly, even for adults. But what I'm wondering is, how does this translate into supporting a community of teachers who are having emotional and mental health challenges? Sure. So I'll start with why Fred Rogers first. Um, You know, we're 
Right now, we're a part of the Fred Rogers Institute, which is a learning and development organization that was founded by Fred uh, when he was ending his time in television. He wanted to continue to support children and their families and helpers and wanted to do that in a place where he could teach and support others through writing and workshops. And so we continue that work now. These ideas around educators' neighborhood So this was an initiative that started in the fall of 2019, which in hindsight is a really terrible time to start something new. However, what we started in 2019 has now shifted to meet the needs of educators, very loosely termed, in 2023 and ongoingly. So we started with a few educators in person in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area in 2019. They were watching episodes of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and they were sharing them with kindergarten students. And what we noticed was their learning about their own practice was really essential and was a byproduct of sharing this information with children. So we started to look a little bit more formally at what it means to learn from the principles of Fred Rogers as adults and be able to extend that to practice. Can you tell us fairly briefly what some of his principles are that are founded on this platform and this organization? So we started the project by allowing that to be driven very much by educators. And that was during the COVID-19 pandemic. So they were looking at things that reminded them of why they went into education or working with young children in the first place. Um, So those were great reminders that they shared about the importance of childhood. They were also very interested in what it meant to slow down in their own practice and to provide space, not only for children, but for one another to be able to share what they were experiencing, uh, the need to be able to address difficult conversations, And so those were some of the foundational ideas we were thinking about. And then in the last few years have brought in these uh, essential ideas for learning that Fred Rogers offered throughout his entire career, but that we find especially salient for educators in their own well-being and then also in extending those to children. And those are six fundamental core values. The first is a sense of self-worth. Second is a sense of trust. The third is curiosity. The fourth is the capacity to look and listen carefully. The fifth is the capacity to play. And the sixth is times of solitude. This last one is the most intriguing to me because the others I think are golden, but why is that last one included? So the last one is, it does, it seems like, you know, one of these things is not like the other, but I, we find, especially working with educators, that the times of solitude element is one that we overlook in not only our own practice and our own well-being, but also when extending that to children and young people, especially as our children are, are growing up and becoming older in classroom or informal settings, those times of solitude can feel a little bit scary. And those times of solitude, the one thing we, we really work hard is to understand this fine line between times of loneliness and times of solitude. And it's why we use times of solitude last because times of solitude are made and built from these deep trusting relationships with others. That it's very hard to be in a a time of solitude and self-reflection unless you know that there are relationships that are present that will help you through those times and also be alongside you. So times of solitude does not always mean by yourself, but it's times of of reflection, times of self-awareness, And sometimes for children, it's mistaken as times of daydreaming or imagination time that is very internal. 
And so we're talking about times of solitude for the students, but also for the teacher, because what I'm, I think what most intrigued me, I was having a conversation with Stephanie Bacon, who's doing her doctorate on socio-emotional effects of trauma on teachers, because we have this assumption that teachers are trained in mental health. And what your organization is highlighting is that is absolutely not true. And so this solitude makes me pause because when I became a teacher in New Mexico, I'm from New York, but I became a teacher in New Mexico in the lowest economic um, sector of New Mexico. And the, the kids, the children in my classroom had most of their parents in the prison. I mean, that's how disruptive and, and, and volatile their home life was. And just as an instinct, I started off each day asking them to lie down on the floor. I had made pillows for them and just close their eyes. It could have been, I don't remember, five or 10 minutes, but it probably was, I realized, the only five minutes of silence in their life every day. And I don't even know why I did it, but I felt so. So can you tell me why I did it and why it's important for other teachers to do it? Wow, it really is. Um, and I, I love the idea of social emotional learning for educators. You know, that's really, if we were to label some of, of what we're doing, that's that's really in line with what we're doing. Sometimes the solitude allows the, the noise of the world to take a backseat for a while. And so for children, especially who are coming from homes where you called them kind of disrupted. Our educators are similarly experiencing disruptions. And oftentimes our educators are told that those personal parts of their lives need to be left at the door and that they can't always come to their classrooms or learning spaces as full people because they're leaving so much of that at the door. And what I tell our our pre-service teachers here where I teach at the college is that bringing your whole self to the classroom allows your children to bring the whole self also. We don't want to deny any part of our children. Why would we deny parts of us as adults? And things like solitude and leaving time for self-reflection and leaving time for that kind of time of peace, if you will, if we're modeling that for children, that's one of those lessons that uh, the old Quaker saying, attitudes are caught, not taught. You can tell children that times of solitude are important, but until you model that for them, they won't understand what that means. And being able to show yourself and others the importance of time spent in your mind or time spent just in quiet is incredibly important. Could you explain now what the organization does and why teachers are so emphatic about how much it has changed their attitude towards teaching? Because one thing we didn't say, and I'd like you to sort of expound on this, is one of the reasons why you created this organization was because you found that teachers were leaving the profession because of stress, because of depression, because of bullying by students, which I did not experience. And that's horrifying to think about. So can you explain now, what are some of the methods, the strategies that you use to help teachers feel safe and be models? Yes. And you hit the nail on the head with um, with teacher retention right now. And it was, honestly, it was a bit of a byproduct of the work that we were doing. We, um, we believe very deeply in the presence of caring adults in the lives of children. And we wanted to offer a place where those experiences and practices were honored and there was space given to talk about what was needed and the, the supports and the successes. So we offer a community for educators around the world to be able to share in those practices related to these fundamentals that we can talk a little bit more about in a moment. But one of the things we learned in the last few years was that educators were coming to us and about two thirds of them had considered or were actively considering leaving the field. 
Now, after a year of a cohort of Educators Neighborhood, hopefully contributing to the change of that, uh, when we ask the educators again, about 20% of them were considering leaving the field. I think that had a lot to do with many things, but we'd like to think we played a part in that. And I think one of the ways we played a part in that was by reconnecting them to educators who were also feeling the same way and reconnecting them to their why of wanting to be with children and young people in the first place. We're finding more and more that educators have a a loss of community and a disconnection from one another as they're asked to do more and more that the community with other teachers has been sacrificed. And also their connection with students right now, everybody's lives were incredibly disrupted. And sometimes what worked before isn't necessarily working now. And to hear that you're not alone in that and to be able to work with others in a a like circumstance to address those concerns is uplifting and also very much that power and strength is found then from within and not being told you're not doing enough or you're not enough. And as you say, teachers close their door and can feel extremely isolated because although they might feel confident about their lesson and they're surrounded by children, they're children. And so what we need to do is build community. And so what you're doing is you're building connections so that the teachers can feel this community. And then when they go into their classroom, either they shut the door or not, they will know that there's a community out there supporting them and that they can get support from. Is that right? Absolutely. The community of support that we build around these programs, I don't know that what we do would be possible without the community. I think the process of community is almost more important than any of the content that comes through the program. And also what we've heard is that these educators can then take that community and work with teachers that are right next door. So they might be learning across cultures, across geographical space. However, they're able to take that idea of community and the value that they have and be able to extend that within their own buildings or districts or any of the spaces around them with educators who might not be a part of our work, but now can catch some of that by those who are deeply engaged. All right. So Dana, can you tell us more of the specifics? I'm a teacher and I'm stressed and I need support. So I call you and you might suggest that I join a group or what are the steps, if you don't mind telling us, because I would like listeners to call you and tell you, I need your help, please. There are a few ways to get engaged. Sometimes educators aren't ready to have a a commitment to the program, and that's certainly understandable. So we do offer monthly webinars where we highlight the voices of the educators who are a part of the Educators Neighborhood Project, and they will talk about topics such as burnout and slowing down and everyday materials. So things they've learned from the Fred Rogers Archive and possibly watching episodes of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And we have a panel of educators who will engage with some topics and share their thoughts. So that's one way of being engaged and learning a little bit more. A way of being more deeply engaged and maybe more actively a part of the work is by being a part of Educators Neighborhood. So there are cohorts that open every year and those cohorts bring together, we use the term educator, but it's really anybody who is supporting the development of children and young people even those who are supporting the educators. So last year, I had a small group of 18 higher ed faculty from across the United States and Canada who wanted to be able to extend these ideas with their pre-service teachers, so college students who were expecting to go into the teaching field. So we have a, a big cohort. This year, we'll have about 500 educators with us, but each of those educators also has a small group that is a part of a like context 
So you might be a part of a group that is elementary school teachers or early childhood providers or maybe librarians. So you're learning in like context. And then we bring everybody together every other month to cross-pollinate, if you will, to learn across practice. So we have early childhood educators teaching high school math teachers what it looks like to put everyday materials into practice. Or what does solitude look like when you're working with college students versus when you're working with six-year-olds? And so they learn across context, which is where a lot of those ideas really come into being. But it's interesting to see that even across all of those contexts, we're struggling with some of the same challenges. So can you delve in a little more about the ideology of Fred Rogers? Because to me, it's fascinating, the fact that we're taking, from what I understand, and you know much better than I do, he really was what he appeared to be. He really did live and believe by the philosophy he manifested in his show. And a lot of it is so subtle, you may not realize it. And yet you came up with the six principles. And it's very interesting to me that you say educators loosely, because I use educators as a loose term. Instead of saying teachers, it could be a parent who is an educator hopefully an effective one. So can you explain a little more specifically some of the principles and how they concretely interact in these groups? Sure. And yes, we we purposefully called it educators neighborhood for that same reason. And we're very active in making sure people know that everybody is included in that term educator so that we have a much broader array of experiences too. So these principles, the six that I mentioned earlier, they they manifest in different ways in practice. And so one of the, the ways that we talk about these are theoretically linked maybe to some of Fred's work, whether that be an episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood or a speech or uh, a quote. We have the Fred Rogers archive here at the Institute. And that's about 22,000 items related to Fred Rogers' life. So uh, the possibilities are endless of what we could share. But typically, we begin a small group by sharing a little bit of what Fred said about a topic. So we'll ask the educators to maybe share a little bit about what they think trust means. Then we'll look at something that is an artifact from the archive. And then we, we talk about that artifact, but then look at practice around that artifact. So for example... When we were looking at self-worth, we had, when I was working with the higher ed faculty in particular, we looked at a speech from the early 1970s where Fred was talking about how college students and children and young people were all experiencing some difficulty in identifying their own self-worth. So that aged very well, early 1970s, and we're still talking about it now. And we had a a great conversation around self-worth. And in the middle of that conversation, I had one person in our group who's usually pretty vocal. She was very quiet and she shared, finally, she kind of came off mute and said, I just don't understand how I help my students to see their own self-worth when I don't feel worthy of teaching them. And everybody went quiet. I'm getting chills. Yes. (laughs) And so you can imagine then the conversation that came from that, that It showed us very deeply the importance of being able to take this time as educators to think about these core values and, of course, talk about them in relationship to children as well. But being able to think about them as adults, you know, we here at the Institute, we live by that core message that we can't make a lasting impact on children if we're ignoring the needs of their grownups. And being able then to help their grownups through some of these ideas, I think, makes them better grownups. 
and also equips them to be a better support for children. And what it sounds like you're doing is you're giving these educators a platform to express themselves. And the fact that she was so self-aware to understand that that was a block for her, that she did not feel worthy enough to be a teacher. How could she teach her students to feel self-worth? That's very powerful. And I was just speaking with a meditation expert, yoga expert, sort of health and body expert. And I was asking her for some techniques that teachers could use in their classroom to exactly what you're saying, slow down, become more self-aware, learn techniques to breathe more slowly so that you can assimilate more knowledge. But until we deal with the effective domain, with the emotional side, there's not much that's going to go into the brain and stick. And so I go back to a note I took down that you said in the beginning, part of what you do is help teachers slow down. And what you just said is you did, you, you listened to her. She felt heard because she was, and then you delved into a little more. And so how did you help her process that? I will say that one of the things we do is we trust the community that is a part of the group too. So, you know, we, I made sure to, to give that space where her peers could also come in and say, oh, wow, you know, I felt that too, or I can certainly see how that's a, a challenge. And so it's less about what I can bring to the group and more about what they can bring to one another. Now, I am also a higher ed faculty member, so I have common experience. Our facilitators are all parts of the groups that they're facilitating. So we bring that experience with us. But it's less important for me to be able to come in and reassure than it is for them to work through those feelings and be able to express the depth of them and to show the support for one another. So obviously I, I was supportive as well, but I think what came from that is an understanding that she wasn't alone. I think that many of us think that we are alone in so much of what we feel toward the work that we do. The work of helping, the work of educating, as we talked about earlier, can be kind of a lonely place to be. And it's often hard to talk about our struggles because we're held to such high standards. And if we say, I don't feel like I'm doing this well, we can be concerned that it'll be held against us. And so in this setting, she was able to say, I don't feel worthy. I don't think I'm doing well enough. I don't think I am enough. And for others to say, I feel that too. And here's some ways that I've thought about it that have helped my students and helped myself. And from that, we heard that they have admitted that to their classroom of students to say, you know, I don't feel like I'm giving you enough today. And the students have been able to say, oh, oh, you really are. Or to say, you know, I feel that way when I work with others too. And they can have that open conversation that sometimes just isn't something that is valued in a learning space, the way that, you know, meeting the standards and objectives are valued. So not only did you slow down and let them work it out, you also modeled how they can slow down and have these conversations in classroom, which most teachers do not do because there's so much pressure to check off each curricular point that we don't think that it's important. Or even if we do, we feel that there's no time to do it. There's a question I have for you, though, and I'm wondering if self-worth as a teacher has to do with the interaction we have with parents. And one of my mission statements with this podcast is to make education more transparent so that parents understand the thinking of teachers and vice versa. Unfortunately, what often happens is that the parents who are most insecure about education 
ignorant and not a negative sense, but simply don't know what's going on in the classroom. They come in to the teachers and are a little more aggressive than they need to be, a little more demanding they need to be. And so the ones that are the parents who are supportive do not come in as often. And so what we're getting as teachers is sort of a barrage of parents, not necessarily yelling at us, although it may feel that way. And so this feeling of not being worthy may come from an unbalance of parental participation. I'm wondering what you think of that. As you were talking and um, kind of describing the experience of families too, I couldn't help but wonder if maybe these families also don't feel worthy of being a support to their children. And I think that there is, when we talk about transparency, there's transparency of information and communication style. There's also a transparency of the vulnerability we can share in sometimes not knowing what comes next with children. You know, I have two children myself and with my teenager, I often will say to her, you know, I've never been the mom of a 13 year old and you've never been 13 before. So we'll have to figure this out together. And I think back to the way that Fred Rogers would react to families and parents who would write him for support. And the first thing he would say in every reply was how special and how lucky your child is to have a family member that cares about them so much. And I find when I would talk to families, even with college students, to say in the beginning, I can tell how much you care about your child. And I want you to know that I care about your child too. And I think the best thing we can do is to remember that that's why we've come to the table together. And to de-escalate so it isn't some type of adversarial relationship, which sometimes it really can be, or that's what it feels like. But to be able to say, you know, family, you know your child in a way that I don't, but I also know your child in a way that you might not in a learning setting. How can we share that knowledge together so that we're working toward what's best for the child? We don't always have to be friends, but how do we work with the child? Well, that's very powerful, Dana. I wish I had had a mentor like you when I was just beginning my teaching career because I had very challenging parents and really felt blindsided by them, mostly because I was so committed to doing my best for their children and they didn't see that side. They came to the table with their own problems. And I mean, I know now they really just wanted to be heard because nobody was listening to them in other sectors of their lives. But nobody warned me about that side of teaching. And if I had been more mature, more experienced, if I had had a teacher who would have sat with me with those parents and helped diffuse the situation, maybe we all would have had more constructive talks. So my hope is that any new teachers listening will take your words to heart because they really talk to the heart of all involved. So moving ahead. What about the experience level of the teachers? Are we going from new teachers to very experienced teachers? There's a wide range of experience, yes. And primarily it's, I would say, the middle ground. And I don't know if that's because of the people who have a firsthand experience with Fred Rogers, who are drawn to that, may have, they're coming to our work with some type of personal connection to Fred. And that personal connection may be based on a kind of a nostalgic feeling, possibly. Um, Everybody has that own point of connection. I think our task is to take that point of personal connection and help them to drive more deep. So you're still reminded of Fred Rogers. You're still drawn to him. Why? It might be because of the lap that you sat on while you watched Fred Rogers. Maybe that's the personal connection. It could be, and it likely is, what he said to us as children, it still matters. And why does it matter? It's because it still makes sense to us as adults. 
And if it still makes sense to us as adults, if hearing you are special and you are loved just the way you are, and that we all yearn to know we are loved and have the capacity to love others, if that still matters to us as adults, I think we have a responsibility to make sure that the next generation of children, they can feel that as well. And so that's our goal is to make sure that it doesn't stop just because the red sweater is no longer front and center in our minds, that those messages can still be extended. Just so you know, the listeners, that she has a red sweater and a picture, gorgeous picture of Fred Rogers. Dana, could you tell us a little bit about your history and how you became associated with this organization? Sure. So (laughs) it's funny because when I look back at kind of the places I've been, they didn't make sense at the time. Uh, There's certainly a thread through them and what, you know, Fred recalled as guided drift throughout my own career. So I My background is in education policy and development. And so a lot of my work has been in listening to other people's stories and understanding the relational needs of a system. So I started my career working in the prison system in the state of Pennsylvania, working with folks who are about to be paroled or released and needed to reacclimate into their communities. And so a lot of them really just needed someone to listen to their story and to be heard and understood and seen in a way that maybe a, the system of corrections hadn't afforded them. Of course, it's a different kind of system. And my goal was to not see them again. My goal was that they weren't back in in my setting anytime soon, but I learned the kind of the importance of of listening and the relationships that even are possible in an ecosystem that might not support relationships. And so from there, started to think very deeply about what that looks like across learning spaces, whether they be formal or informal. And that look at relationships across settings brought me here to the Fred Rogers Institute because that, from the very beginning, that has been a a foundation of, of what our organization does, which is focus on the importance of relationships because it is through relationships that we learn best and grow best. And that was a a quote from Fred and notice he didn't say until the age of eight. So that is a a core of what we do. And I I firmly believe that if, if we aren't offering a sense of relationship or a place where our relationships can grow, then that isn't worth doing. So in every sense of the word of relationships, what we ask ourselves every morning is what is it that we're doing that is encouraging, enriching and empowering relationships to grow? And that becomes kind of the core test of our work here. It's one of the reasons why in Educators Neighborhood, it was a response to that disconnection or lack of relationship and how we can support those opportunities for relationships to grow. Well, now I have a question that I didn't expect to ask you. The organization itself, how many people are involved in the organization, first of all? Sure. So we're, we're rather tiny. Uh, we have a full-time staff of seven here in Latrobe, which is Fred Rogers' hometown. We also have a number of students that work with us. We're located on a college campus. So we have right now four graduate assistants and a team of 36 or 40 undergrads who are coming through our building. We also work very actively with partners and consultants who have expertise in areas that we don't so that we can think about how we continue to extend Fred's message. So places like children's music or public ministry and theology, leadership, communication. So it's a small internal team with hopefully a lot of network growing around us. So I'm wondering if the ideology is extended into the structure of the organization itself. I would assume that the answer is yes, but I'd love you. I'd love to hear that. 
It really is. Um, you know, I'm very careful to make sure that we are practicing everything that we are espousing to the world. Um, we work very collaboratively. We are a team that is built upon relationship. Um, and I'm, I'm clear when people join us that it's not a place that needs to you know, break boundaries into personal lives. However, we do bring our full selves to the work, which means if there's something going on in our personal lives that needs to be addressed above our professional lives, then that is preferenced every single time. Uh, we don't ask anybody to leave half of themselves at the door. And the work that we do here is preemptive to the work that we do with others. So we practice this type of community setting. We practice the learning around these values internally before we ever offer it to somebody externally. And what I've heard you say a few times is that you want to honor the whole person. You want to see the whole person, no matter what context it is. So in your organization, in the educators that you're facilitating information with, that you're building community with, and that extends to the students. And one of the most powerful things that we can do, I learned this when I was a new teacher, was look a student in the eye. And it could be the only time someone has looked at that student in the eye in the whole day, but it's just to give them the message that they are being seen. I think that this is probably one of your fundamental principles is to try to let go of all the behavior and remember that underneath all of the the maybe appropriate or inappropriate um, choices they make during the day that we recognize who they are and try to see the gem inside of them. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering how that can come out in some of the groups that you have. So we take on this approach called helpful appreciation, which was a term coined by Fred, where it's, you know, a core part of that is being able to find what is healthy and laudable about another person and reflect that to them. Oftentimes when we see behavioral challenges, even in our college students, it's, it, you know, it's a product of something much deeper. And it's sometimes when we reflect what is good about that person, they will tell us that's the first time I've seen that in myself. And I think that's the job of many of us. Um, if I were to ask you how your day went yesterday, chances are you're not going to tell me about the great things that happened. You're going to gravitate toward the things that may have gone wrong. Our educators have been conditioned to do that, especially. But we like to focus on the moments in between. So sure, there are spotlight good and there are probably spotlight bad. But what are those simple moments in between there where we were able to maybe deeply touch the life of another person in a way that we overlooked because it's just what we do? Being able to highlight those parts of a person that, you know, you are special for the grand things you do and also the really simple and little things that you do. Reflecting that to college students sometimes is really fun. Um, but also can be a bit challenging. So I had one student who came through my classroom who was just completely convinced that he was a jerk and would never offer anything else. When I asked him about himself, he just said he was a jerk. And so being able to help him to see that he was far more than just one thing, far more than what the world had labeled him was a challenge, but also well worth the effort. And I think that's why we go into this work. Any of us is we want those we're supporting, whether they be children or grownups, to be able to see what is good inside and to be able to grow from that good instead of trying to fix everything that might not be. So we don't go in with any type of mentality of fixing anything, but rather highlighting what is good and helping to grow from that. And these ideas, these principles have germinated from Fred Rogers' work. 
right? Directly from his work. Absolutely. Directly from them. I'm no fun at parties because everything I say comes directly from something that Fred has said or written before. But yes, every one of these ideas can be traced directly back. That archive is the foundation of everything that we do. So Dana, what what is your big wish in this organization? What would you love to happen in the next five years, let's say? Hmm. Wow. Obviously, we'd love to work ourselves out of a job where every educator feels empowered and encouraged and they don't need us anymore. But I think in the next five years, I think a major goal for us as an institution is to know that we are not the sole carriers of this message. We would love to be able to see that the the principles around Fred Rogers, the impact on practice, the messaging of how we make goodness attractive and helpfully appreciate others is growing so far beyond our walls. We don't look at ourselves as the protectors of those messages or even the sole conveyors. We want everybody else to take a piece of that and put it into practice wherever they may be. So if those messages are growing organically in new places, I'd say that's a a pretty nice marker of where we could be in five years that feels like hope and success in my mind. Is it important that you have this collaboration with the university, with the college? I think it is because it's the one thing we know Fred wanted to do. Really? Can you explain that? So he was imagining our organization and then he died before he could see us open. So he died in February of 2003, and we opened in September of 2003. So we have conversations of what he was interested in doing, but we don't necessarily have a blueprint. But the one thing we know is that he wanted to teach and work with the next generation of helpers. And so having the partnership here allows us to do that here on campus, but then also have a model to extend and bring in college students from anywhere who may be interested. And so I think reaching the next generation was incredibly important to Fred. And this gives us a direct link to that. I feel as though we've covered the structure to a certain extent. And I'm just wondering, and I promised you that it would only be an hour because you have so many commitments. And again, I appreciate so much your generosity in giving us this time. Is there anything that you really would love to express about the organization that I haven't asked you and you haven't been able to cover? Hmm. I think one thing that is important about our organization and the work that we do is that there are a, there's a variety of ways that Fred Rogers can be extended. And we have chosen one particular way at the moment. And that one particular way might be a little bit big. It's providing those spaces of relationship and community to educators and families and being a source of support. But that is just one way. And the archive below me gives us many other avenues forward. And so while we have have taken up this one way of support, there are a lot of ways that Fred Rogers can be extended that creates that sense of goodness and hope and support for others. And that is something that excites us. And some organizations may feel threatened that they can't be the sole purveyors of that. We're excited by that. And we we welcome people to extend these, this legacy and this understanding in likely and unlikely places. So that's what started my work is looking for relationship in likely and unlikely places. And I hope in 20 years, we're finding Fred in those likely and unlikely places too. It's just so powerful. And it really is such an eternal message. And you're saying he said it so long ago and it's still so relevant and there's a reason for it. He really cuts to our heart and our soul. 
So Dana, I thank you for sharing all of this. I would really love you for you to share, to send me any links so that I can share them with the listeners so they can put themselves in contact with you. And I hope that you hear from a lot more of them and that maybe, as you say, they can start creating their own communities based on Fred Rogers' work. Just really appreciate it. And I would love to talk to you again in the future and see how the communities are doing. Absolutely, Donna. Thank you so much for the invitation. I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm glad. I'm really glad. So that's our talk with Dana Winters at Educators Neighborhood based on Fred Rogers' ideology. There are so many important takeaways from our chat. I'm not really sure how to pick my favorite, but probably the deepest message is that when parents wrote to Fred Rogers, asking desperately for any word of advice he could give them to resolve demanding challenges at home, he began each and every one of his letters praising their passion and dedication to look for solutions. That is something we can all master, beginning with the recognition that all of us are doing the best we can and also are looking for ways to do even better. So you can find other inspiring conversations like this one at Doorways to Learning with Donna and activities to introduce new knowledge at scaffoldingmagic.com. In the meantime, have fun in your classes and at home, and see you next week for more.